The convergence of autonomy, connectivity, electrification, and ride-sharing is going to change the auto industry as we know it. On this week's show, author Larry Burns lays out his vision for the future. Underwriting for the production of Autoline this week has been provided by Borg Warner. The world is changing at an ever-increasing pace. No matter what the mode of transportation, there is always the need for an efficient propulsion system. And that's exactly what Borg Warner has been doing since the earliest days of the automotive industry. We create innovative mobility technologies that reduce energy consumption and emissions while improving performance. Our proven track record has made us an industry leader in forward-looking propulsion solutions for combustion, hybrid, and electric vehicles. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. You've heard about autonomous cars. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. In fact, it goes way beyond that. It's all about autonomy. In fact, there's a book written about it, and the author of the book is here with us in the studio today. He's Larry Burns, the former vice president of research and development and planning at General Motors. He's also an advisor to Waymo. And he's also a lecturer. And Larry Burns, great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. Also joining us today are Lindsey Brook from SAE Engineering and Jack Keebler, a consultant with Keebler Auto. And great having the both of you guys here. Thanks, Thanks John. The show. Larry, I'm intrigued by this move to autonomy. In fact, you see massive disruption coming to this country. You did a very interesting study of Ann Arbor, Michigan found that there were 200,000 personally owned cars. But you're saying with autonomous ride sharing, we could satisfy everybody's transportation needs in Ann Arbor. And instead of having 200,000 cars, we could take that down to 18,000. How soon might something like that happen? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Of the 200,000 cars in Ann Arbor, about 120,000 of them spend all their time right in that Ann Arbor metropolitan area. And it's those 120,000 cars that the 18,000 could replace. The question we were asking in that study was, if you had a driverless car combined with an electric vehicle and you tailor design that to the typical trips we make, 80% of our trips are one and two person, then that was a fleet that was shared. How many did you need and what would it cost and how quickly could you serve the people? And uh, it was a remarkable result, John. It was very compelling. We could reduce the cost per mile of transportation down to about 20 cents a mile from about a buck 50 today when you include your time cost. So that was a, an exciting moment. We did that work in 2010. Here we are in 2018, and I think we're probably within three to five years of really having proven that out, reaching that real tipping point where people have done this for real, people like it. Companies can make money off of it, and it's ready to be scaled. So it's, this is something that's going to be playing out in the 5 to 10 to 15-year world, not the 20 to 30 to 40-year world. Mm -hmm. That's a different kind of car you're describing. Um, you know, how, what's the life cycle? We're not, it's not a 100,000-mile car. It's a 300,000-mile car. Yeah, that's a great, another great observation. When you look at taxi cabs in Manhattan, they typically get 300,000 miles. If a car is maintained properly... And in fact, used up over a four or five year period, you can get that kind of life out of it. Uh, the type of business we're talking about here is transportation as a service. And the auto industry has really been based on vehicle as a product. 
so the, we design and engineer our cars so they look great in the showroom so that the first 10 seconds when someone walks in, they fall in love with it. Then we get the price point right and they buy it. Transportation as a service, it's a fleet, so you want to get that cost per mile optimized and give great riding experience. It's sort of the ultimate riding machine. So, Jack, there's no question the vehicles are going to be designed differently. So what does that type of car cost? Well, now, I uh, know retail customers aren't necessarily going to be buying these things. They might be part of a big fleet. The fleet would maintain them. Um, but, you know, that again, that's a vehicle that sees a heck of a lot more service than a conventional retail yeah, customer. Another, another very astute observation, because when you optimize the cost per mile, it's the depreciation of the vehicle, which is tied to what does the vehicle cost, divided by 300,000 miles. It's also the maintenance cost over the life and the energy costs. And when you do that analysis, it turns out those contribute roughly one-third, one-third, one-third. That's why these vehicles want to be electric, because the savings on electricity versus gasoline more than pay for themselves. That's why they want to be designed for easy maintenance, uh, because the maintenance is, is part of it. And then finally, there's the, the cost of the vehicle. But think about, think about this calculation. Let's say the vehicle, including the autonomous driving system, costs... $30,000. And we can debate. I'm going to go to 60000 in a second, Jack. Okay, so, thank okay. you. So let's say it costs $30,000. You divide that by 300,000 miles, that's 10 cents a mile. And let's say then you don't believe my 30000 The reason I put 30000 out there is you're going to get a lot of parts off this car that you don't need because you don't have a human driving it anymore, steering wheels, gauges, and other things. But let's take another approach to this. Let's say that the self-driving system just the sensors, the processor, and the um, uh, controllers and stuff, let's say that costs 30000 That's just a made-up number, and you divide that by 300000 That's 10 cents a mile. Now let's say you make minimum wage, $7.50, an hour, and you drive it 30 miles an hour. That's 25 cents. Even a $30,000 self-driving system is 40% of the cost of a minimum wage person driving. So, to be frank, I don't think the question is, what does it cost for the vehicle? It's what's the cost per mile compared to what people are paying today. Yeah, I was just trying to get at the, the, the physical difference between an autonomous car yeah. and the cars we're, we're yeah. more familiar with. Well, I think with. the differences are, first of all, you don't have the driver. Mm -hmm. and, and so you don't need the steering wheel, the brake pedal, the accelerator pedal. Um, you don't need all of the gauges. Windshield wipers. Windshield wipers, and, uh, absolutely. Then you can begin to think about air conditioning and heating differently. Uh, these forced air systems that we have today are really pretty archaic when you think about it. But then you probably want to make it easy to get in and out of, and you certainly want to make it electric drive, and I think you want to make it highly maneuverable. Um, so um, wheel motors may be, be in play with this. Um, if you take that to the over-the-road truck, which is an even more compelling example, think of the parts on the over-the-road tractor that are there because it's human-driven. You mentioned the windshield wipers. Well, the windshield, the doors, the seats, the air conditioner, the driving controls, that pile of parts definitely is going to cost more than parts you put on to make it autonomous. And suddenly you're talking about an autonomous over-the-road tractor that costs less than a human-driven over-the-road tractor. And this is why the profound now, impacts on design. We have this goal, goal of the driverless car, but you know, one thing that John and I were talking about a little bit earlier was there are various levels of autonomy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like to pin down my expert about what level of autonomy we're talking about. There are five, I believe there are five levels of autonomy. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're, try when you're trying to, you know, 
project when does autonomy arrive, level five when versus level four when, three mm -hmm. when, two when, you know, it, it, they're, they're very different levels of capability. And, you know, it's been interesting to watch some of the yes. issues that have been occurring with some of the vehicles that are already out there, some of these pilot vehicles that are circulating. There have been some deaths, there have been some accidents. Um, how high is this mountain, I guess, is my question. Let me first address the accidents. Uh, John mentioned at the start I'm an advisor to Waymo. I've been an advisor to Waymo since 2011. They've accumulated 9 million miles on public roads. They've had one at-fault crash at 2 miles an hour. My contention is when you do this work properly, when you do development on public roads to the highest standards of process control and conscientious about the risk that you're out there, always have your test drivers in the vehicles, have them put their cell phones in the glove box, don't let them get distracted, you can develop this safely. Joshua Brown's fatality and Elaine Herzberg's fatality are mm -hmm. tragic, but in both of those instances, we're talking about systems that had not been rigorously tested, and you let real consumers in them. So that's, that's a real concern. So what you're really saying is some companies are doing it right and some are that, cutting corners. Abso absolutely, and we can't cut corners on this. Um, I'm a real advocate of getting to this end game as soon as possible. 1.3 million people a year are dying on the world's roads. If we can get there one day sooner, we're going to save 3,000 lives. But if we try to get there sooner than we can in an appropriately risk-managed way, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. So let's go back to your question, Jack, which is I, the title of my book is um, Autonomy, the Quest to Build the Driverless Car. So when I think about this, I think about what you're saying as level four and level five. No driver in the loop. I don't believe we can ask a human to spend most of their time not driving and then suddenly, hey, Larry, it's time for you to take over because me, the robot, can't handle By the this way, situation. it's a critical situation. So everything yeah. I talk about is level four and level five. Level five is go everywhere under any condition at all times. I don't think we're ever going to get there. I think the beauty of what SAE has created in their level four structure, which NHTSA has adopted, is that you can start in an envelope defined by level four, these roads under these conditions at these times, and if that is a big enough envelope for commercial value, you can launch a business. And you know what happens next? It'll get bigger and bigger and bigger as you continue to learn. And we may never get to full level five, but we can still get this launched. And there was an interesting part in your book too, Larry. It was like 2012 or 13, where at Google, before Waymo, there was discussions on do we do automated yeah. vehicles and do, or do we go to full autonomous? And it made me realize that, you know, we, we've driven Cadillac Super Cruise recently, how far ahead these guys were of everybody else, because these level one through three vehicles are just now kind of coming into, into play, yeah. and Google was already making the decision back then Let's go to level four and level five. Let's yeah. skip this whole a, AV kind of point. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I thought that, uh, I think Google self-driving cars made two really profound decisions. The first one is that they were going to develop the autonomous car without vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication. And I could say without vehicle-to-infrastructure, they do a GPS where they download their maps, but they're really not dependent on reading a piece of infrastructure other than a traffic light. That was a big deal because at that time there was an awful lot of talk about V2V and V2X as being critical to getting to autonomous vehicles. That was a big, bold decision. They thought they could get the job done with the onboard sensors, 
the onboard processor, great software. Cars talking to each other. No, their cars didn't have to talk. Waymo could launch their car. Without that. Without that. So the vehicle that they were developing could mix with human-driven cars, and it wasn't dependent on a capability of any other car. The other big decision they made through their own experience was we want to get the driver out of the loop altogether. They created a fleet of vehicles that they let Google employees, they call it dog fooding, Google employees take out on a weekend and go from, let's say, the Bay Area to Lake Tahoe on I-80. And the deal was we get to watch you with the camera and you have to pay attention. And they're a few weeks into this and they realize that these people are just zoning out. They're so comfortable with the car driving on I-80, they're reaching in the back seat, they're reading, they're eating. They even had one person fall asleep, and they killed the program and made the decision. And there's an individual at this team named Nathaniel Fairfield. He made a profound observation. If our goal is to be safer than a human-driven system, we'll never be safer if our fallback is a human. Hmm. So let's just get the driver out of the car completely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And fortunately, again, SAE came up with this idea of these different levels. And part of the reason we wrote this book is to try to get at some of that confusion that, that comes with mm-hmm. this terminology between self-driving and driverless and uh, uh, driver assists and, right. and, and everything else. I, I would add, too, the, the Ford Motor Company has said it's going to do exactly what Waymo did. Skip level one through three, go straight to four and five, because they, uh, they said the, the handoff where you have to hand the car back to the driver to take control. Yeah. Scared the hell out of Too them. Risky. Yeah. Too risky. Yeah. yeah, and I don't think that's a surprise there, Ford, because they've invested in Argo AI, which was founded by Brian Seleski, and Brian was one of the lead engineers on the Google self-driving car team. Larry, I want to go back to what I opened the show with, saying your study in Ann Arbor mm-hmm. showed that you could get rid of well over 100,000 cars yes. and still meet everybody's transportation needs. There's roughly 270 million vehicles in the United States mm-hmm. right now. If I apply that, that same sort of scale, we could get rid of, I don't know, 200 million cars in this country. Yeah. Do you think, think that's happening, that, that we are headed to that world? I think we're headed to that world, but it's, it's not happening yet. But let me put one qualifier on that. Uh, those vehicles in Ann Arbor, the assumption was they would all be shared. And the reason the math works on that is population density. And people make about four trips a day. And so you take a square mile of Ann Arbor and you say, I randomly spread those four trips for everybody in that square mile. And then you simulate that, the probability there's somebody asking for a ride just after I was dropped off in that square mile is pretty high. And that's why it works. So suburbs, of which half the Americans live in suburbs, about a quarter of Americans live in cities, suburbs and cities, so you're looking at 75% of Americans, that kind of a service would work. But we've got to be realistic. Those 270 million cars you talked about, most of them are individually owned. So think about what's going on here. Today, people go out and buy a car and own it themselves. They put up with a hassle of shopping for it, insuring it, financing it, spending their time driving it, looking for fuel, looking for parking, all those negatives, and they still do it. Now what are they going to do when you make that experience dramatically better, get rid of all those negatives, and lower its cost? I think they're still going to want to have a dedicated vehicle for their use. I just don't think they're going to be owning it, John. I think they're going to have this robotic valet that's at their dispatch control. So my life would work as follows. Um, If I was working downtown in Detroit, I would ride my dedicated vehicle to my 
entrance to my office building, dropped off at the door. That vehicle would then, on its own, go find a place to sit and wait for me. While it's waiting for me, I may dispatch it to go pick up my wife and take her to her hair salon. She may then dispatch it to go pick up our daughter and take her to soccer practice, who may then dispatch it to pick up my mother-in-law to take her on Meals on Wheels. I may then dispatch it from there to go pick up my dry cleaning and take out dinner so that when it picks up my wife, my daughter, my mother-in-law, me, we all get back home. So that's a highly utilized vehicle. I may not need a second and third car anymore, but I still have the dedicated usage of that. So I'm not convinced it's going to be a one-for-one -one translation of the Ann Arbor simulation to the entire fleet of cars in the United States. But what happens after I'm done with that car? Let's say I'm happy with that dedicated car for a two-year lease. Then it goes into this shared fleet, and maybe I used it for 60,000 miles, and it might have another 240,000 miles left on it. Then it goes into the shared. Why would the shared be viable? It's so low cost because you're depreciating the full 300000 I know it's a long answer, but, but I, I really think the big impact on the car companies then is, is twofold. First, I think most cars will get used 300,000 miles rather than 150,000. So that should cut the number of cars in half that need to be produced. But the number that get produced then will be how many miles are you going each year? So some people will argue more miles will be traveled in this future because young people can use it old people can use it, handicapped people can use it. So maybe that might grow the industry a bit. I think the bigger concern is that it's gonna become commoditized. I don't think the basis of competition is gonna be chrome and zero to 60 and cornering and all the things that we have felt are important for car purchases in the past. I think it's gonna be about the ride experience. So the machine itself gets commoditized. That takes a lot of the pricing power out of the industry. Well, that's what we need to worry about. Larry, you're gonna pry my Mustang GT from me with, <laughs> from my cold, dead hands. That's fine. <laughs> and, 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 Just saying that because that's the argument for uh, those that really still like to drive and see a, a private ownership model continuing in the Nobody future. Nobody's gonna, no one is saying, certainly I'm not saying that you can't own and drive your own car. Hey, more power to you. If what you want to do is spend your time tethered to a steering wheel, great. If what you want to do is probably pay higher insurance because you're a much greater risk on the road than the robotic car, great. If what you want to do is stop and look for fuel and pump your own gas, great. If what you want to do is look for parking and walk into your entrance, great. And if what you want to do is do that, Lindsay, at probably five times the cost per mile, Fine. Interesting. In fact, there were people who didn't want to give up their horses when Henry Ford popularized exactly the car. Right. You know what? Horses are still around. Yeah. People enjoy racing them. They enjoy equestrian and polo, and they do it in clubs. Yeah. And hey, this is all fine. I, I'm not anti yeah. the, the car culture. I, I just say that because yeah. I hear this I all the time. I, I, I understand. Yeah, yeah. But for most people in their everyday lives, it's not this Mustang GT experience that they right. want. They just want to get to their destination and not be hassled. In fact, they'd like to get to their destination feeling better getting out of the car than when they got into it. To, to your point, Larry, I mean, there's been some discussion about motorsports parks. You know, mm -hmm. for the enthusiast mm -hmm. drivers like uh, like Lindsay that doesn't want to let go of that uh, Mustang you. steering wheel. Or I'm being facetious. Me with my know. Factory 5 Cobra. <laughs> right. You know, we'll, we'll be able to go to the motorsports park and drive the car there, drive it to its full potential, 125, 150 miles an hour. But, uh, you know, one of the things you suggested was that there are going to be these insurance costs. I mean, aren't, 
aren't some of these entities going to kind of disincentivize driving your own car where mm. insurance costs might be quite high for somebody driving their own car versus all these folks okay, that are well, safe? I mean, the data would say the data would yeah. say that, Jack. I mean, 90 percent or more of the crashes are due to human error. Right. And what's so beautiful about the self or the driverless cars, it's like having eagle eye vision with eyes in the back of your head. And it doesn't get tired, it doesn't get distracted, it doesn't get drunk. And when someone figures out a way for driverless car A to do that task better, all driverless cars become better. Today, when I've had a driving experience that I learned from, there's no way for me to transfer my learning as a driver to, to, to you and Lindsay. And that, that's unfortunate because everybody thinks they're a good driver. But in fact, there's a lot of people in a lot of circumstances who aren't very good at, at what we're asking them to do. And that translates into 40,000 Americans a year dying. You know, it breaks my heart every time I read about a car crash, let's say where a car was going the wrong way on the freeway. I don't know what's wrong with our society. We've got technology right now with GPS and stuff that should prevent any car from driving up an exit ramp yeah. of a freeway and go the wrong way. And why aren't we doing that? Even that is that doesn't even require autonomous cars, Jack, to be honest. We can, we can get at right. these things now. Larry, where's the industry going? Because uh, I agree with you that the total number of miles traveled will increase mm -hmm. because you're lowering the cost and opening it up to everybody in society. Yeah. Yeah. But this is an automotive industry that needs manufacturing scale. The more cars you make, the more you can amortize the cost of developing it. If you start... Uh, going into a world where we don't need as many cars, the cost of making them is going to skyrocket. And we're seeing this transition to people maybe not buying as many cars and buying their miles yes, traveled yeah, instead. Yeah. Where do you see the industry well, going? Um, in 2016, at the end of 2016, I sort of got curious about how profitable were the auto OEMs. And so I looked at the very simplistic calculation, the net income that each company made globally and divided it by the number of cars they produced and sold globally. And the poorest performers were down around $1,000 in net income per vehicle, and the best performers were around 5000 And then I said to myself, geez, if, if I was in a transportation service business and I had a vehicle that lasted 300,000 miles, and I believe my own numbers in autonomy, where I think we can go from $1.50 a mile, that's about 70 cents of out-of-pocket costs and about 80 cents of time costs, down to 20. If I could just make 10 cents a mile off of that buck 50 down to 20, that's $30,000 of profit off of the same vehicle. So the problem with the auto companies, they're in the, the wrong business. Their business model is really unattractive for investors. Think about what they do. We were talking earlier, maybe a half a billion dollars has to be invested to do a next generation Chevy Equinox. And it's been over a three year period and you hope over the next six years you generate enough money to justify that investment. And then because you've made that car, you enable ExxonMobil to sell gasoline and you enable Allstate to sell insurance, you enable banks to do financing, you enable um, um, auto parts companies to sell auto parts, and you look at the profit margin in those businesses, they're all superior to the auto OEM. So the OEM puts most of the capital in, takes on most of the risk, and everybody else makes the money. The year GM went bankrupt, we lost $35 billion. ExxonMobil made $45 billion. <laughs> Think how crazy that is. So crazy. the auto companies are just in the wrong business. I think they're going to have to pivot mm. to a transportation service business model 
and become a player in that. Some of them will be the supplier of the vehicles to this. They'll get in front of this and they'll design and conceive of vehicles that are the ultimate riding machines that have the optimal cost per mile and they're going to be a preferred supplier to fleets who want to go into the, these businesses. Others, I think, will still try to do a dedicated use uh, transaction with me. They'll be my transportation service provider, but I'll have a dedicated use vehicle. They better have a good autonomous vehicle driver to put into that car, and they better have the re uh, associated um, ecosystem for parking and re-energizing and maintenance in order to give me the kind of experience I want. Um, I don't think the auto industry historically focused on the experience of their customers. They focused on the car, but the driving of the car, the refueling of the car, the maintaining and all the other things that come with that experience, I think we took our eye off the ball completely. Along comes Silicon Valley, deep, deep understanding of computer digital technology, a fundamental belief that this driverless car could be done, and it's not a, a, a coincidental that the real drive toward experience design came out of the Stanford Business School. And so now it's about designing experiences, which I think can be every bit as exciting for an engineer. Lindsay had asked me to do a piece for um, Autonomous Vehicle Engineering Magazine, and I really made a point. This could be one of the most exciting times to be an automotive designer and engineer because you get rid of all of these constraints that are boxing in the historical design, and now you can think of brand new experiences for new market segments. I think it could be a very exciting period. You, you Will have, exterior have, styling still be a differentiator mm -hmm. if we're moving towards more of a commoditized type of module. vehicle module? Well, um, I, I guess so. I'm, I'm going to answer it this way. The fact that this is a rectangle, is that a differentiator? I'll never forget when the uh, a Nano came out. This isn't the Nano, obviously. And... and um, the, the iPod Nano, and I was reading an article, I think it may have been Wired Magazine article, and the, the writer said, I've got my Nano in my hands, I'm spinning it around and I want to put it in my mouth and suck on it like a piece of candy. I'm going, my God, it's a rectangle. <laughs> What's going on here? They, they, they're in love with the experience, Lindsay. So I don't know whether appearance and the actual look, but I, I think differentiation, um, I know being in the, in the, in the, the right Fashion statement is important to my kids. It's important to my wife. Again, I mentioned she's in the hair industry, so fashion's important. I probably have 20 pair of blue jeans in my closet. None of them wore out. They, they became obsolete from a fashion standpoint. So I think there's going to be a fashion standpoint in terms of what I'm seeing riding around in. Hmm. But I'm not sure it's going to be the same fashion cues that we've had historically on cars. Uh, we're going to have to wrap this up. I, I would say uh, one thing. Go look at Rolls-Royce's vision for a level five car and then tell me styling doesn't count. They put a lot of styling into it. <laughs> well, great observation, yeah. but they don't sell a lot of cars. I, I know, but uh, look, we've, we've got to wrap this up. Unfortunately, yep. the book is called Autonomy, the quest for developing uh, to build the driverless car. Larry Burns, thanks so much for being here. Really thank good you, stuff. Lindsey Brooke, Jack Keeble, I want to thank you guys, too. Thanks, thanks John. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Underwriting for the production of Autoline this week has been provided by Borg Warner. The world is changing at an ever-increasing pace. No matter what the mode of transportation, there is always the need for an efficient propulsion system. And that's exactly what Borg Warner has been doing since the earliest days of the automotive industry. 
We create innovative mobility technologies that reduce energy consumption and emissions while improving performance. Our proven track record has made us an industry leader in forward-looking propulsion solutions for combustion, hybrid, and electric vehicles.